0: to the cuny lecture series in this edition novelizing naples who is the neapolitan novelist writing as elena ferrente the world doesn't know, yet the world has taken notice of such books as The Days of Abandonment and The Story of the Lost Child, the final story of her or his Neapolitan Quartet, which places Naples at the center of the universe. Ferente's translator, Anne Goldstein, and publisher Kent Carroll joined The Graduate Center's Giancarlo Lombardi and Bettina Lerner at Prashansky Auditorium to talk about Ferente's work. One critic calls it a social tapestry with an underlying feminist sensibility that explores the struggles and contradictions faced by women in the latter part of the 20th
1: century. I
0: Would you like to start?
1: I'll, I'll give the history of it, the background. Of
0: yeah, it. sure.
1: Um, the books have an interesting history, and very much of a kind of an up-and-down history. Uh, Europa began, we came together and decided to start this publishing company in the summer of 2004, and we published our first book in September of 2005. And uh, it was, we were the sort of sister uh, company of uh, EO in Rome, which is a a very well-established and and, uh, well-thought-of independent publishing company. And they had come to New York and asked me to join them. Their idea was to do books in translation. It turned out that for business reasons, financial reasons, we do most of the books in translation, but about a third, sometimes almost a half of them are uh, English language books, more from UK in keeping with the Europa idea than than American, but it's an an interesting mix of the two. Um, And the first book was Days of Abandonment, and it had been published a couple of years previous in Italy. And... I was told a number of things about it. I had great hopes for it, um, great expectations, I suppose. And I read it, and I thought it was unusually good. Uh, I thought it was was a, a common story that was told in a very different way. Usually that story, when it's in romance novels or it's on a television movie, there is, the husband comes home and confronts his wife and says, I'm leaving you, and she's devastated. And he leaves. But shortly thereafter, she meets another man. And this other man is younger and better looking and rich. And he falls desperately in love with her. And then the husband tries to come back and she says, piss off, and she gets her revenge. Well, Days of Abandonment is not that story. And um, I read it, and I, as I said, I was very impressed by it. But I thought, this, this is going to be a difficult story for some people, but I think it's a wonderful book. What was important, I gave it to my girlfriend, Helen Whitney. And she read it, and she said, this is not an important book. This is a great book. And that was helpful because I was then able to to certain people and encourage them to review it. And um, the, the most important review was Janet Maslin in the New York Times. And it was a daily review, and she compared it favorably to Anna Karenina. Uh, and we were all very excited by that. And, and, but were somewhat disappointed in the sales, that uh, there were other reviews and there was attention was paid and some interesting things happened for the first few weeks and the first couple of months, but then it, it slowly receded. Uh, the next year we published, a year and a half later perhaps, we published Troubling Love, yeah. Yeah. which was the second book. And people had, everyone had difficulty with that. Reviewers weren't particularly interested in it. Uh, People who'd liked Days of Abandonment, who I went back to with that book, read it and said, not for me. Uh, And that I tried to make some connection with the author in the first book and nobody seemed to buy that. And then the third book was The Lost Child. And the same thing happened as it had With Troubling Love. There, There really wasn't very much interest. And very few reviews and sales were not particularly good. And the sales by that time it started to sort of slip with, uh, with days of abandonment. Although I had a friend who ran a bookstore for Booksync in San Francisco. And he ran the, the, uh, uh little bookstore that was uh, just between the, the entryways to American Airlines and United Airlines. And in that store, he always had on the front by the cash register he had last minute books. And there was a little pile of last minute books for men and a little pile of last minute books for women. <laughs> and so I sent him Days with Bannamit and he read it and he said, I think it's a very, very good book. He said, but this is gonna be tough to sell. And because of, he said, I'm not sure who, how to sell it because of the, the, the content. I mean, I can't, it's, it's, it's not a romance novel, it's not a genre novel. And uh, so I said, put it on the front Table with the last minute books, and when women come in, probably not young women, but when mature women come in who look smart, (laughs) sell it to them. And he he started to send me a monthly uh, toll, and the first month he did that, we sold like 132 books. The next month, we sold 200 and some odd books. At the end of the year, we'd sold 1,400 books. And the whole year, the sales of Days of Abandonment was 8,000. So we sold something, almost 20% of all the books in the single store. (laughs) But that tells you a lot about publishing and what you can do if it's done properly, if you can take advantage of certain odd sort of opportunities. The other thing that came back to me from that was, there were young women who came back to the store and wanted to return the book and said, I wish you hadn't sold this to me. They found it too upsetting. Yeah. So that's sort of the the background to this, and then with the, with the, what turned out to be the quartet, originally was going to be it was going, just going to be three books, um, and it's my brilliant friend. And immediately there's certain difficulties. It's not as if you have a, a sort of a conventional saga where you have three complete books in order. This was essentially one book that was broken up into three and then later turned out to be four parts. Um, But um, I thought it had great potential and it was obviously very very important to try to get this established because there were more, more books coming. And it proved to be very difficult. Even the people who had liked Days of Abandonment we not particularly interested, and they didn't like the idea that it was a. Um, it was a. They thought this was this elaborate coming of age story, uh, and all we only got to pay We only got to age twelve or thirteen or something, and they thought uh, it, it, this is going to be very difficult to do. And stores felt much the same way. Uh, there were there were some stores that uh, were very good about it. They read it, they liked it, they thought they had an audience for it, and they made it available. But it was difficult, and we didn't get the reviews. We published in September of uh, 2012, and very few reviews came. The, the New York Times did not review it until November or December, and it was a brief review, and it was not a favorable review. Hmm. But what had gone on in the interim was I was in, in uh, conversations and exchanges with two people at The New Yorker. One was uh, Henry Finder, and the other was James Wood and Wood was obviously, was very interested, and I recognized how important that was because of, of his stature and his influence. But it was, I couldn't pin him down to anything, and, and he has a history of taking beginning projects and then not following through, I mean, it, which is his right, but he has that, that, he's, he has that special um, stature that he can start something and, and move away from if he wants to. If you're reviewing, you know, you're assigned to review something for the New York Times, you, you, your career could be in jeopardy if you do that. But he wanted to read all the books, and, and so I got him copies of all the books, and all this went back and forth, and then in, it was January or February, um, he wrote a four-page piece, or a five-page piece in The New Yorker. And this really was the turning point. Uh, I mean, it really was very important. And in, in, in principally because he wrote about the author, he wrote about who she did and how she wrote and why this writing was so unusual and so exciting. And it had this wonderful combination of being very traditional, but taking all the traditional genres and doing it in, doing it in a way that was, was seldom done before. And she, he wrote some about uh, My Brilliant Friend, but it was essentially the books. What that did is it helped to sell some books, but there wasn't this avalanche of sales. But what it did is it gave her stature and it gave her place. The following September, the second book comes out and and it 's even more difficult because people who hadn 't reviewed the first one said, well if we didn 't review the first one, how can we review the second one and we don 't have space to review the second one and the first one so there was even less attention there, but what began to happen was they, there was there was a beginning word of mouth I mean there were people who who I knew and, and my girlfriend knew who were the ideal audience the, these were uh, educated, intelligent women who read very good books and belonged to at least one book club. And these are women who would, who would ask you not, can I get the next Ferranti when it comes out? They wanted a galley. I mean, they knew what a galley was, and they knew that that was gonna be early. And they were key to that sort of word of mouth, because they were, and I sent everybody who asked for a copy of the book, got a copy of the book. The cheapest and best thing you can do when you're promoting something is give them the book. It's It's essentially, very cheap, and it'll do a lot. If it can do a lot of work for itself, it, it it will be extremely helpful. And I and it seems to me that this is not, you know, I don't have hard data and evidence about this, but from what I could tell, a conversation began between these women, and in many cases, these were women who know people who were editors and reviewers and authors. And it was, it was an interesting conversation in part because of her privacy. That they loved the mystery of it. Uh, they, they confused a lot of things about the mystery of it because some of them I knew, and you'd be sort of surprised if I told you who they were, who actually had bets about whether this is a man or a woman. And it always seemed to me that it was such an odd thing. I mean, I just couldn't imagine a man could write this book or anything close to this. But... Um, that that, that um, engagement that they had was very important, and it spread. And when the third book came around, there were there was already an interest in it before we published, and it started to go out to some of the. Um, we started to get uh, requests for interviews, which she wouldn't do. Later, she did interviews, but it was only by email. She wouldn't do the, the she wouldn't do them in person, but we also. Overcame the idea of, with the second book, people said, well, we didn't do the first, how can we do the second? We don't have room enough to do two, and, you know, we only have 800 words, or 900 words, we can't possibly review two. But when we came to the third book, there was, there was this shift that had taken place. People just thought about it in a different way. And much of that came about because the people who had been reluctant, some of these, some of the book review editors, they now had actually read the books. And they were personally very interested in it. Um, and with this, the third book, we had, we kept a list of this at one point, and I think we had 114 uh, different what we call hits. And that was reviews. Now, a lot of these were bloggers and small newspapers and things, but, and, and, and interviews. I mean, it was just an enormous amount of activity. Um, and the, the book started to do very well and did well and brought the other books along with, with it. Uh, interestingly enough, um, my brilliant friend continued to sell more than any, other, any of the other books. So when we came to the fourth book, which has recent, just recently come out, what we really needed to do is we no longer had to try to influence people and tell them and convince them this was a good book. All we had to do is have a lot of galleys and send one to everybody to ask asked for. It. And everybody did. And then everybody wrote about it or reviewed it. I mean, the, the review coverage is, is really quite extraordinary. And the, the the depth of it, and the length of it, and how good some of it is. I mean, the understanding, and I think that um, the, the mystery of her, uh, the idea of early on women having the sense that they discovered her herself, and they had almost a person, an investment, a personal interest in this, was really is extremely important. In how this how this played out. Um, and it's, and it's continued. It's gone to, in, in, in a larger direction, so you have you know, these clubs and these meetings and people that get together and talk about it. And it is, I mean, I say this without blushing, the, the book deserves all of this attention. It deserves the reviews it's received. It really is something quite unusual. I mean, there hasn't been anything quite like this for some time. And, and there's, there's certain things that she does, the way in which she incorporates genre forms into literary forms i mean it's like, it's it, it's a thriller it's a, it's 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 got the you know um, the mystery suspense idea it's got the you know the false leads and when she, in, at least one place where she's talked about this is her idea of the demands and the responsibilities and the limitations of what she thinks of as modern fiction is she doesn't that doesn't interest her at all. I mean, this is a very conventional storytelling, but in the in the smartest, richest way you you can imagine. I mean, there's very few things to 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 connect this to, and so at Europa, this has obviously been a very happy time for us. Uh, it, it's it's uh, we've been rewarded, but we think we deserve the reward. We think we did an awful lot of work for two and a half, three and a half years. Um, and it's and she deserves it. I mean, she is uh, she's a major major talent. These books will be around for a long time, and uh, it's been all in all a great experience. Thank you. You
0: wanna go? You want me to go? Sure. I will go, um, so uh, so let me start uh, just by first of all thanking uh, Kent for giving us that background and Andre and the Writers Institute for having us today and of course especially Anne uh, Goldstein for being here and let me just say right off the bat that uh, I feel a little bit like uh, an interloper here tonight because I don't work on Italian literature at all, really, as part of my research, and I really came to Ferrante very recently as a lay reader, I like to say, um, but I did, unlike Giancarlo, come to her exclusively through Anne's masterful translations, and so it makes me doubly happy to be able to be here tonight. You know, as academics, we don't usually include translators in these kinds of discussions, even though we obviously should, um, and I think, you know, obviously Ferrante's success has so much to do uh, with Anne's translation. Um, and making her accessible to Anglophone readers. And uh, so I'm not going to take up too much time because I know you really want to hear what Anne has to say. What I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about um, is the particularities of, uh, well, two things in particular. I wanted to first situate uh, these novels and what uh, people refer to, or what Pascal Casanova has called the world republic of letters, uh, and I want to maybe challenge also what Casanova has meant by that, um, and I want to say a little bit more also about how the Neapolitan novels in particular, not just thematize but really uh, deploy translation as one of the organizing structures within the novel itself. So I'll be very brief, and then I'll ask a couple of leading questions, which hopefully. Uh, we'll return to some of the comments that Kent has made and we'll return, uh, we'll hopefully open the floor to what Anne has to say. Um, so, uh, you know. Casanova identifies the global literary field as the site of a series of struggles over recognition and prestige, which take place between literary works produced in the world's peripheries and its centers. And on the one hand, uh, the literary field is distinct from economic and political geographies. And on the other, any writer, quote, stands in particular relation to world literary space by virtue of the place occupied in it by the national space in which he or she, in this case, has been born. So in other words, Ferrante can and should be read, and Giancarlo, and I agree on this, in relation to Italy's history and politics, economics, and literary legacies, of course. At the same time, Casanova argues that each writer's relation to his or her own national situation is also mediated by a broader set of interests and relationships to the center of global literary production at any given time. And it's no surprise that for this French critic, that center happens to be Paris from the 19th century onwards. Um, She calls it the, quote, Greenwich meridian of world literature. And France does indeed come up as a cultural reference point all over Ferrante's novels. But I would hardly call it a meridian. in in those novels. In fact, I can't help but smile at the fact that Lenu enjoys her time in Montpellier with Nino far more than she does her week in Paris with Franco. Um, And so Ferrante's novels seem to me a case in point for contesting Casanova's otherwise brilliant analysis of the conditions of literary production and circulation. So the theoreticians of world literature often unwittingly adopt a center in Casanova's case, Paris, from whose vantage point everything else can be comfortably surveyed as periphery. Um, To the the extent that Ferrante's novels provide an alternative account of numerous intellectual and political movements of the 20th century, from feminism to communism, to the rise of Europe as an ideal and as a real realpolitik, um, I think they do so in a markedly different way than what Casanova suggests, because every time we return to Naples, which is the putative center of the novel, we find that it's shifted in dynamic ways. Um, indeed, the novels are structured something like an optical zoom lens. They telescope in from the street to the neighborhood, to cities, regions, countries, Europe, and of course also America. And so Ferrante thus emphasizes the kind of movement that Casanova's analysis tends to play down, that is to say, the ability to cross boundaries of all kinds, including national boundaries, without losing a certain sense of self. More precisely, her narratives uh, tend to draw subjectivity itself as a continuously shifting set of boundaries and we see this in both its positive and negative effects so you'll remember that Leela's instability which eventually comes to resemble something like a psychotic break is described repeatedly as her inability to seize and retain borders and edges between people and things um, and Lanoula on the other hand welcomes what she describes as the expansiveness earned through the dislocations that her writing and her travel afford her so her strength comes in part from her ability to negotiate boundaries and and changes from within and from without. And so let me say right away that I think that that's what makes her character the perfect foil for the figure of the translator herself, right? So the editor's preface to the Dictionary of Untranslatables opens with the following very awkwardly phrased aphorism. One of the most urgent, and I'm quoting, one of the most urgent problems posed by the existence of Europe is that of languages. Um, and so for all of the, uh, I know, problem, right? Okay, challenge, maybe, but problem. So for all of the Italianness of her novel, I know of no other contemporary novelist capable of staging the thorny challenges of Europe's linguistic politics with as much wry elegance as Ferrante. And we get a sense for this by recalling two apparently minor scenes that take place a couple of chapters apart in the fourth book of the Neapolitan novels. Um, and at this point, uh, Lila, who's left Stefano by this point and is broken up with Nino, is living with the patient and loving but horribly boring Enzo, who is studying to be a computer programmer through a correspondence course that's based in Zurich. And late at night, Enzo, who clearly worships the brilliant Leela, says asks him to help her with her work. And she protests it's German, Enzo. I don't know German. And he says, but if you concentrate, after a while you'll know it. And he's partly joking, partly serious. So the scene takes place well before the creation of the, of the EU, but we sense in the unspoken tension between Lila and Enzo the center that the center of technical and economic power is located well to the north of Naples, where Enzo and Lila are living in poverty. Several pages later, the same tension reemerges um, in a different situation altogether. Lenno's high school boyfriend, Antonio, who has found work in Germany, um, actually sends her the translation of her novel into German as a gift. And she opens this gift in front of the Solara clan. And Leela is there as well. And everybody is very admiring of this book, except Lila, of course, who ignores it. Um, and at this point, you'll remember also that later on, she'll name her own programming company Basic Site in English because, and I quote, otherwise no one takes you seriously, she says. <laughs> so in Ferrante's world, language is capital but it's a kind of capital whose value is always shifting and changing, and Lanoue's mastery of Latin and Italian is the source of her mobility, but also, paradoxically, it's this barrier that increasingly separates her from her family and her friends, especially Lila. In negotiating between Italian and Neapolitan dialects, Lanoue finds that, quote, while Lila's Italian was translated from dialect, my dialect was increasingly translated from Italian, and we both spoke a false language. Indeed, false but ultimately rich and productive and even utopian languages abound in these novels. And it is, after all, to Italian that we owe what is perhaps the oldest cliche about translation, Mm -hmm. the famous tradutore, traditore, she who translates betrays. And what else, if not betrayal, should we expect to find at the center of novels about Naples? Um, So it's been pointed out more than once that Lanoue's last name, Greco, indexes her status as an insider-outsider, the classicist who has mastered much of the ancient civilization that Latin Rome conquered, by virtue of which she finds herself isolated and alienated from her original community. But Greece, albeit indirectly, also provides us with a fundamental link to the history of translation, lest we forget a foundational moment in the field of translation is the third century BC Alexandrian commission of the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. So it's not surprising that Lanou emerges as the writer translator of Vela's story, and their story and their friendship or frenemy ship, we might call it, um, are repeatedly described as the intricate, inseparable entanglements of an original and its translation. Here, for example, and I'm almost done, here, for example, is Lenou's describing Leela towards the end of the last novel in these explicitly translational terms, which I love. The nature of our relationship dictates that I can only reach her by passing through myself. And Lenu's words here unveil the heart of the translator's challenge, since to translate always demands an accounting of one's own voice and one's own words. And the process goes both ways, of course, just as the translation of Ferrante's novels have affected her reception both here and obviously in Italy, have transformed really her reception in Italy as well. Um, So I learned quite recently thanks, Paul, for giving me this article, um, that uh, Rebecca Falcoff wrote this great piece about Ferrante in public books that um, among the many uh, theories that are circulating about Ferrante's possible identity, at least one of them maintains that she's, in fact, Anita Raya, the translator of Crystal Wolf into... German, uh, Italian, And this would be quite fitting, since in my mind, the novels really speak directly to the role that Goethe had assigned to the translator in his elaboration of the concept Weltliteratur in 1827, which is uh, the translator is not only an intermediary, but a creator of literary value. And I'm quoting Goethe, whatever one might say of the inadequacy of translation, this activity nonetheless remains the most, one of the most essential tasks and one of the worthiest of esteem in the universal market of world trade. So I'll admit that personally I'm not especially invested in uncovering Ferrante's quote unquote real identity. I do think that her works speak for themselves so I won't put Anne and Kent in the position of having to answer the million dollar question, right? But I do want to end by just sort of asking a few questions which may or may not be interesting to them. Kent actually addressed a lot of them in what he had already said. Um, So for Anne, I guess I think me and I think most people want to know, so how did you come to Ferrante as a reader and a translator and how, if at all, has your reading changed um, now that you've translated her, thanks to your <laughs> translations, right? Um, and I guess uh, to Kent, he has already sort of addressed part of this, but I guess um, you had said that you weren't sure how Ferrante was going to play out with an American public, so I guess maybe this is a moot point, but you know, how do you identify a global literary phenomenon when you see one, would be the question <laughs> that I have for you. Um, and so for both of you, finally, what comes next? But I think... John. Well, Carl- my... <laughs> Yeah. Introduction
2: to Ferrante is very simple. Um, thanks to Europa Editions, um, which as Kent said, the, the first um, book that they wanted to publish was The Days of Abandonment, and they needed a translator. And they shopped around a little bit, um, had a contest. Well, not a contest, they had. They got some sample translations. It was a
1: contest, you won. <laughs>
2: I won. I didn't know anything a about Ferrante. No, I didn't know anything about Ferrante. Um, I really learned it when I started reading The Days of Abandonment. and. I was just completely, um, completely gripped by that novel. Um, it was, as Kent said, I mean, it's, it was, it's an old story, but it was told in a way that is so, I mean, I, probably many or all of you have read it, but um, that it was told in such a powerful and intensely um, involving way that um, I could barely put it down. <laughs> but, of course, being a translator, I had to read it many times. and. It got to be very claustrophobic uh, <laughs> to be locked in that, <laughs> locked in that apartment. The ants. The, the sick child and the dying dog. So um, <laughs> it wasn't, it, it was difficult. I mean, it's actually quite difficult um, in some ways to translate Ferrante. Mm-hmm. And the Neapolitan novels are, um, I actually happen to love Amore Molesto, Troubling Love, mm-hmm. which was not that popular, I guess. I, I, I like that in some ways almost well, not better, but I, I, I love that novel. Um, also a difficult a difficult novel, um, not quite in the same way because it's it's much more um, I think it's more particular about Naples, but, but certainly um, compelling. And the, the tetralogy, which as Kent said, we didn't know it was, I didn't know it was going to be a tetralogy. I mean, I just started from the beginning with my brilliant friend, not really knowing. I mean, I knew that it, was, that it was, well, you know right from the beginning that it's a big story because you know that it's gonna be the 60 years of someone's life. So, and at, at, when, that, when it ends, they're, the, the heroines are 16. Um, so you know there's a little more to come. But the thing is, <laughs> if you haven't read it, and I hadn't read it, it's, it's a little hard to understand what you're reading in a certain sense. So I don't know what what, are, what what was the rest of your question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, I guess I you know now that you have uh, sort of I can understand this. And you start, you don't know where you're going to end up, but now that you have, which is a,
2: unusual, actually, yeah, in a I mean, it's
0: an project,
2: odd, odd thing. But so, how
0: has your reading
2: changed? I, I don't really think it's changed that much. I mean, the there are um, I guess you're going to talk about this a little bit, but um, but in certain in a certain sense, I mean, the many of the themes are the same. The narrators are they have certain they share certain. Qualities, um, certain, um, and and they, they. Sh- I wouldn't say they share a voice, but to me, they seem they do seem to be part of the same author. Even if I don't, I don't know who the author is. <laughs> um, they, there seems a, a very strong person there. I mean, a very strong. I have a very strong sense of a person writing these books, even if it's not literally the person, the narrator of these books, the eye of the books. Um, and I don't think I think it's just it's really more a, uh, an idea of, of the an expansion really rather than a change in my um, my understanding or my sen- my sense of it my my work really mm-hmm. um, a lot of the you know the, it's the, the sentences are similar I mean they're not the same but they're it's, it seems to me it's the same person writing. Mm-hmm. Jack,
3: Carla, do you want? I. To- I, I actually, uh, I, I'm really glad that in a way I, I, I heard what you guys had to say. And um, because it, my entry point to this question into, into Ferrante as a writer is somewhat different. I, I actually went in order, but I didn't go in order. Just as you know, just as Europa started with, with the Days of Abandonment, uh, and so with the second book. The second. I didn't yeah. start with the second book, but I started with the movie based on the first book, like many Italians did. Because L'amore Molesto was a huge film, probably one of the most important films of the 90s in Italy. And strangely enough, a movie that did incredibly well in Europe and never traveled outside of Europe.
2: It, it, he went
3: that. to Cannes and did incredibly well. Mm-hmm. He was released in England. And for those of you who are interested, if you go on Amazon UK, you can actually get it on DVD with English subtitles. And I'm, you know, and I have something to relate to what you were saying about the question of translation, because the question of translation is pivotal in Ferrante from the very beginning. And it was pivotal in the movie because the movie had to be translated for it. It had to be subtitled for Italians. Because the, the movie was entirely in Neapolitan dialect. My students watched it in my course last year and had to watch it with English subtitles. It was in Napolitano, and it was in Napolitano Stretto. But, but the, this is the question yeah. of Ferrante, right? right? I mean, already Mario Martone, arguably one of the most important directors of the present, had this incredible challenge. What do you do? With a movie, with a book that talks about dialect without ever uttering a word of dialect, yet talking about dialect all the time. Mm -hmm. Talking about dialect in semiotic terms, in semantic terms, saying that, you know, that dialect is the only language that combines sound and sense. That, you know, that you feel, that you feel abuse in dialect where you don't feel it in Italian. And you know, and once again, you know, those of you who have read L'Amour et Molesto, you know that there's a mother and a daughter, and a mother who disappears from the very first line. A line that borrows very much, I believe, from it, from l'étranger by Camus. My mother died in that area of I, I can't remember by heart the line, but you know, it's basically it's a very short line where she says where her mother died, when her mother died. Um aujourd'hui maman est morte. It's a very, very similar feel to it. And, you know, and I believe that Ferrante's language at that point borrows from that type of language. You know, it's uh, it's very much indebted to those kind of writers. The same thing will happen with Days of Abandonment. In a way, the Days of Abandonment is very much, in a way, a rewriting of Simone de Beauvoir's La Femme Rompue. <laughs> so, again, you have, you know, the woman destroyed, and she actually quotes her in the book at one point. Yeah. She says, I feel like I'm in the life of a French existentialist writer. Uh, But you have the question of language right at the beginning of this film, of the the book, and the director had to, to make a choice there. So how do I show what is only discussed in the book but never shown? Uh, and Ferrante, and he wouldn't do it without Ferrante's authorization, but, of course, Ferrante refused to intervene personally. He never met with her, and this incredible exchange of letters started, which was really the first real intervention of Ferrante that we saw in the press because shortly after the success of the movie, the correspondence between Ferrante and Martone was published. And, you know, and one of the questions Martone asks says, you know, What is typical of your novel, and now we know of all her novels, is a very strong first-person narration. What do I do with it? I cannot have a voiceover. A voiceover would be excessive in a movie. And eventually he does without it, and he endows the character, Delia, with a pair of glasses that she doesn't have in the book. And this pair of glasses become uh, a very important object that has a lot of symbolic overtones, and it also establishes a pattern as to what is past and what is present uh, before and after the abuse. Um, and, And Ferrante accepts some of the changes, rejects others, is eventually invited to show up at the premiere of the movie, and then she says, I can't. You know, she says a very similar thing that she said at the very beginning to the, the owners of EO. He said, she said, "I've done all I had to do for this book. I wrote it," mm-hmm. and and she says now she says, "I'm not going to do more," and show up at the premiere because I'm already writing another book. And if I threw myself into this book, I would forget what I'm doing right now. Um, so, you know, I participated in what was happening when the movie was released. This was one of these rare movies where people would linger outside the movie theater in groups and talk about the movie and say, what happened? How did you interpret certain passages? Um, and then people went back to the book. Uh, and I think that, you know, then, you know, the phenomenon of the of the days of abandonment came. And once again, the question of language became important. If anything, because Olga talks so much about la perdita di senso, the loss of meaning that she experiences during the abandonment. Uh, And I think that, you know, both of these characters, just as Leda, return in the Chronicles. Now, the Chronicles are completely different, you know, from, from Camus and Beauvoir. You have a writing that is, you know, you go from 100 pages to 400 pages pages, a piece, which for a reader of Ferrante is quite a challenge. And let's face it, when Io produced the first book, it was very difficult to find anywhere in the book that this was the first of four. So as we were discussing this with Kent before the event started, when I picked it up, and I I picked it up as soon as it came out, I read, I was done with 300 pages, 350 pages. I had 50 pages to go and I, and I kept saying, she's still 15 years old. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow you have to take me back to 66. This is a problem of, you know, <laughs> of, of ellipses that I just don't understand. The problem of narrative speed wasn't there. When I finally got to the end and I finally got a sense that this was one of four, I said, "Okay, I can go back and reread it and appreciate it differently." And it took me quite a few years to go back to novel two. And before reading the second novel, I had to read to reread the first. And, and Ferrante had strangely become Proust. I mean, she she had strangely taken over a different style of writing. Uh, let's remember that Ferrante is the one who says in her interview. I mean, Ferrante is incredibly well read. Yeah. She's trained as a classicist. She knows British and American literature as well as she knows Italian and French literature. She says, in my writing, I welcome both Henry Fielding and Lawrence Stern. So, you know, you have both traditional storytelling and at the same time, you also have experimentation at its very earliest, you know, presentations. Uh, yet she does it in a completely uh, unique way. Bettina and I were exchanging comments on our reading experience. Ferrante is the ultimate performative. She manages to make the reader jump in the middle of, you know, you're turning a page and you go to the page. No, you can't be doing this right now. This can't be happening. And I think that, you know, I, I think that we all experience fatigue when reading 1,600 pages. This is a book that clocks in at Sixteen hundred pages, mm-hmm. yet, and and it is a book that that in a way, f- France, you know, puts at the very center the question of narrative speed, mm-hmm. the question of duration, time as duration, a very Proustian element, Henri Bergson, uh, and there you have, you know, I mean, you have four hundred pages dedicated to three years, where you know the events that happen during a summer on an island are over 100 150 pages and then you know and then time goes by rather quickly at one at, at different points and and leela always is the element that triggers the passing of time like when when leela enters the narrative the speed Mm -hmm. You know, it's, if anything, because Lenu has to catch up with what Lila has done over the years. They've lost track of each other. They see each other again. And out of the blue, the book picks up pace. And it's, they seem, you know, Lila's entrance almost seems to act on the reader at that point. But what I find particularly interesting is, you know, how Ferrante has changed. Because, I mean, it is true that some of these themes have remained from the very beginning of the first novel. The first novel opens on the recovery of the maternal body, dead on, you know, on the shore of the of the Tyrrhenian. And, you know, and that body is very much Gigliola's body that we find at the beginning of book three of, of, uh, of the brilliant friend. Um, a body that we never know, you know. Re- we never really explore. I mean, eventually you find out she died of a heart attack. But, you know, if it opens a book, we expect that body to be recovered differently. Well. Ferrante doesn't go that way. I mean, Ferrante is like David Chase in television. If viewers want me to go somewhere else, if, if, David Chase always said, if viewers want me to go in a certain place, I go in the opposite way. And this is what Ferrante always does, and she does it in a magistral way. And, and I think that, you know, it's what is really interesting and what has really changed, I think, in Ferrante, even though these themes have remained. What has changed is her treatment of history. Because whereas story was always there. And you know, and, and I don't agree with what she says in an interview where she says, I've never been interested in portraying, you know, what happened to social class in Italy. Well, l'amore ferra, L'amore molesto is all about what happens to a certain class at a certain point in in history, in Italian history after the war, you know? How certain people become rich, how certain people make it. Mm-hmm uh but she does it you know but that really is the only moment of history that we see in her novels in the three novels in the in the, in the tetralogy the presence of history is constantly there and you know and you have the Aldo Moro kidnap you have the the bombing in piazza fontana you have the bombing at the, at the at the at the bologna railway station you have any number of events that are in the background but touch the characters. So much has been made, so much has been written about terrorism, especially in the last 10, 15 years, but her portrayal of the descent into clandestinity of Pasquale and Nadia is unique, because it is portrayed from the other side. Mm-hmm. So how do you see it happen without really knowing? And and, and I think that, you know, it's the the, the Place that she gives her characters, uh, you know, it's vis-à-vis the politics of the time is very um, is very important in a way because it, it, it goes back to what you know, for instance, Marco Baliani, a really important uh, playwright in Italy, wrote about you know when when he when he did a play on the, on the death of Aldo Moro. And he said, back in those days, we were neither with the state nor with the Red Brigades. And this is really what happens to them. I mean, you know, it's this whole world uh, in different shades. Pietro is a little more with the state. And, and, and Lila is certainly much more, much closer to the Red Brigades. But there's certainly all these shades of, of reaction to what was happening in Italy at the time. And it goes all the way to Tangentopoli, to the days of, of corruption of the 90s. You know, you even have the presence of Berlusconi evoked, never mentioned, which is the ultimate gesture that you do, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with the cult of personality. Mm -hmm. And she took a stand vis-a-vis the cult of personality by refusing to ever appear. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that, you know, that there is so much to, you know, there is so much that is specific to the country of production Mm -hmm. and to the country of immediate reception of the novel, Mm -hmm. yet... What is interesting, as we were saying, is the success that now she enjoys in Italy because of what you guys have made, because of what you have made. Because, you know, it's... Because as much as Ferrante was big in Italy, she never became as big as she is right now as a consequence of how big she is in the United States. And that success is really thanks to you guys in many ways. So how... I mean, how do you... How do you handle the the return effect i mean now that she's who she's become where do you go as a, as a as a publishing house and what do you expect for for future authors in a way also
1: well you began with the idea of reading her to, to change things. I think one of the things for me that happened with, with um, Ferranti right at the very beginning was just the quality of the writing. And I, I'd had in, in my career uh, a number of experiences. I mean, I began to publish Beryl Bainbridge when nobody else wanted to publish her. And I began to publish um, um, Jane Gardam when nobody else wanted to publish her. And that sense of really good writing will out. And it seemed to me at the, right from the very beginning that this is so exceptional. I mean, uh, Anne, I'm sure, felt much the same way. And, and Anne's translations are, uh, uh, contributes to this enormously. But, and I think it, what happens now is you publish anything that she writes and you, I think you can as fairly assume that it will, be, it will be well done and it doesn't really matter so much if it's long or short. I mean, it's unlikely she's going to do another quartet, but who knows. Um, but it's it's a, it's a lovely position to be in and I think that, and she clearly has a, a, a true sense of herself. I don't think she wants to do anything or have anything published that she doesn't think is is excellent, very good. So if it's a problem, it's a great problem to have.
0: Let me ask, Anne, I mean, as somebody who works on translation theory out of complete and total envy that I could never translate uh, as well as Anne does, let me ask you, um, if you don't mind, what, I mean, what were the, what were some of the challenge? I mean, were there moments in the novel that were particularly challenging, and how did you? I mean, could you talk a little bit about your process, about how you went about overcoming those challenges, or yeah, I mean, um. <laughs> I don't want to put you yeah, on. I mean, the there, spot no, hand. there are always challenge.
2: I mean, there every every translation project has challenges. I mean, and there are the general challenges from going from Italian to English there, are, and then there are specific challenges of each writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, Italians. Italian syntax is, is um, a little looser in a certain sense. I mean, you can, you have gender, you have, um, you have verbs that don't need subjects, you, mm-hmm. you have things like that that, are, that make things that, so you can, you can move things around in a way that you can't in English, or at least English is a little more rigid, or mm-hmm. perhaps a lot more rigid. So I th- think that the syntax is one of the biggest problems, and the fact that the sentences really come out as run on sentences in English very often and you can live with a certain amount of that, but you can't write a whole book of run-on sentences. Well, not that Ferrante does write a whole book of run-on sentences, but um, I think I think finding a balance uh, between between the Italian, keeping the Italian style, and making it read in English and, and not read like a translated. Well, mm-hmm. not too translated. <laughs> So that's I mean, that's one of the kinds of one of the biggest challenges, I think. I mean, words, particular words. I mean, I was thinking, my relationship to Ferrante is very based on sort of almost a word word to word thing. I mean, I don't I feel like I don't really. I don't often think about it in terms of larger themes. I just think, yeah, yeah. I just think that was a hard word. <laughs> or,
3: marginatura.
2: marginatura
3: or molesto.
2: Or molesto, molesto. molesto is really has become more complicated because of this new La Frontumalia. I don't know if you've read that essay. Yeah. Well, there's a whole. Um, she talks about the title. This is being published in January, I think. I'm not giving anything away. <laughs> But she talks about, um, about the title of Amore Molesto and trying to decide on the title. And she says, well, she, t- she thinks of these phrases in Freud in the uh, theory of female sexuality. But the thing is that the, the, the standard translation of Freud in English is not quite the same as it is in Italian. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't come out the same. I mean, molesto was such a complicated word. Because it's not just it doesn't mean molest. I mean it means bother, trouble. It has all these shadings.
3: It's active and passive in many ways.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and somehow to you know, to, to render something like that into English, it's almost impossible. I mean you just have to I, I can't remember what I what I resolved or if I even resolved it yet. But <laughs> but there's you know a lot of things things like I mean words are Words are, I mean, you, as the translator, you have to choose one meaning of a word. You can't use, well, occasionally you can use two words for one, but you can't constantly use two or three words for one word. So you have to make a decision about which is the most important nuance or meaning of a word. And then occasionally, I've, um, as you'll know, you know, um, I use a, I keep a word in Italian. I mean, I, I kept Stradone in Italian because I didn't think there was a good way. It's it's such an important uh, word in the novels, and it's an important image in the novels. And to sort of say something like big street, or grand street, or large street, or it just didn't seem that it would work. I mean, I guess I could have said the, the street, or something, or the avenue, or the boulevard.
0: Anyway, so Boulevard would be French, and then it yeah, good point. I
2: didn't think of that, but I knew it wasn't right. Yeah,
3: and it wouldn't belong to that. Yeah, to that
2: right, exactly. No, exactly. But even Avenue wouldn't belong to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it didn't seem quite right. So, anyway, um, so there, there's const, There are constant word by word decisions, and I think that's really the challenge, and that's why I feel that I have this
0: slightly different
2: relationship.
0: Yeah. Um, and I know, I think most people know that you are, are there going to be or soon will come out the Primo Levi translations that you... Can- it's, um, they're out. They're out, fantastic. Yeah. Um, so can I, I mean, obviously there's such, it's a completely different project. Completely but different But could you project. speak a little bit to those um, differences from the point of view well, of the Well, Primo Levi is,
2: is a, um, a very pure stylist uh, and his sentences are very beautifully constructed and balanced. I mean, they are also complicated in structure um, and also difficult in that way to make into English, but um, but in, a, in quite a different way. And then, of course, he has a scientific vocabulary that's sometimes very difficult to translate um, just because I'm not a scientist. <laughs> but um, he, he's a and he, he describes actually even more than just the scientific terminology, he describes scientific processes. Uh, it's like the, I mean, maybe I could say that there are certain similarities as well. For example, describing all the parts of the door and the key and the lock was very, that's the kind of thing that, that's that's very complicated because there are parts of speech that you don't even know in English. I mean. Is your desk surrounded by dictionaries? There's a lot of dictionaries, and the Internet is a great resource. (laughs) (laughs) um, I used to use the Duden, the the backwards dictionary, where you look up the parts and it gives you the word. Mm -hmm.
0: Um. You've been listening to the CUNY Lecture Series. For more, visit CUNY Radio online at cuny.edu slash radio. The CUNY Lecture Series is a production of the Office of University Relations.